Our scripture reading comes from Acts 9, 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging in the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil has he done to your saints at Jerusalem? And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray together. Father, like Saul, we need new eyes. We need you to open our eyes and open our hearts to what you would have us to see and to know and to experience through a relationship with you, Father. So we pray that as we reflect on your word over the next few minutes before we come to the table, that you would open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we may see you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Often a lot of people ask me um, what I do as a job, and I tell them that I'm a, a pastor of a church, and that's sometimes hard for people to understand. And then I tell them I'm a pastor of a church that I, with another group of people, started just a year ago, and they have an even harder time understanding that. Why wouldn't you work for a really big church out there? What is it like to start a new church, and what is it like to, to do that from scratch? And I, said, I say this. This is an illustration I've used that helps people understand in some ways. I say starting a church, just like starting a business, is kind of like starting a speedboat. You can kind of go through the waters, and if you need to make a change, you can make a really sharp change and do things that are different very quickly and adapt very quickly to the needs uh, that are presented to you. I said, working for big churches or large institutions are more like working on a cruise ship. That if you want to make a turn, if you want to make a change, you have to plot it out. And you have to spend a couple months talking about the change and working about the change and figuring things out miles in advance. And I think when, I, when you think about change and when you think about life, I think most of us like to think that we change like a speedboat, that we can turn direction on a dime and change our lives like that. 
But more often, we'd rather change the way cruise ships do. We'd rather change in life to be very slow, methodical, and very easy for us. Well, the passage that we've read this morning is all about change. It, it signals a big change in the book of Acts. From up until this point in the book of Acts, we've followed kind of Peter and some of the other disciples. And now from this, from this chapter on throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we'll follow this new character named Paul. But what the narrative tells us this week is the story of the change of one man, a remarkable story of change. And the tendency when you read the story is to focus on the man, to focus on how he changed. But I think the scriptures would have us focus instead more on the one that affected the change in Paul. And that is an encounter with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what we do is we learn a few things about the heart. We learn a few things about the nature of change. And we learn a few things about God from whom this story is really all about. The first thing we learn about God is that he is a God of great and sovereign power. He is a God, he is, we learn about the sovereign power of God in this passage. If you were with us just a couple weeks ago, uh, I shared with you um, about how to learn an area. If you ever move into an area and you want to kind of learn the culture of that area, what you do is you study the heroes of that area. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we talked about the area of Baltimore and, and some of the heroes that are true of this city. But you can also learn a lot about an area by studying its villains as well, studying the opposite. Uh, one of the most uh, coolest documentaries I ever saw about the city of Baltimore was actually done by ESPN about a couple of years ago. And it was one of their 30 for 30 documentaries, and it was a documentary uh, that was called The Band That Wouldn't Die. If you haven't seen it and you live in Baltimore, you need to see it. Because it's the story of the Baltimore Colts marching band. And it follows how they started when the Baltimore Colts were here. Uh, how they reacted when the Baltimore Colts left in 1984. And it talked about how they, as a marching band, carried on despite the fact that the football team had actually left. It is a wonderful story about this city and really its love affair with its football team, the Baltimore Colts. But if you watch the documentary, you'll see that there is one individual who is very clearly the villain of the story. And it was the then owner of the Baltimore Colts, a man named Robert Ursay, who chose to move the Colts to Indianapolis in 1984. Not only do you hear the story about how he moved the team, but you see how people kind of interacted with him and how they felt with him after he moved the football team. And what you do is you see in Baltimore's consciousness the five stages of grief. You see denial, you see anger, you see the bargaining, you see the depression, and then you finally see the acceptance of the Baltimore consciousness that, that their team has gone. But if you hang out with anybody in Baltimore long enough, you'll know that not everyone has made it through the five stages of grief. In fact, many people are still at that second stage of anger. And that anger is still directed at Robert Ursay for what he did. He is the villain of the story in this case. Well, if you've been with us throughout the book of Acts, we've studied a lot of heroes. 
We've looked at the courage and passion of Peter. We've seen the the unique witness of that first community of believers in Jesus Christ. We've seen the miraculous power of John, the courage and sacrifice of Stephen. We've seen the the boldness and the open spirit of Philip. But when you get to chapter 9, you automatically identify what was the church's greatest villain up until this point. And the villain of that first century church was a man named Saul. Our narrative, starting in verse 10, tells us about another character. It tells us about a character named Ananias, a certain kind of no-name follower of Jesus Christ who lived in the city of Damascus. And Ananias was visited by God and given a very specific task. He was told by God to go to a certain location And when he was there, he would find Saul of Tarsus, this villain, praying. Now, we don't know much about Ananias, but we know that he was very hesitant to obey God's command. But, of course, God comes to him once again and tells him to go and find Saul because Saul has become God's new chosen instrument. And Ananias has has no really choice but to obey God. Now, this would have been very hard for Ananias to do. What God is saying would have seemed at best very bizarre or at least very incongruous to what Ananias knew about Saul. He knew Saul's reputation. It wasn't a very good one. Acts chapter 8 tells us that Saul was present when Stephen was executed. And it says that not only was he present, but after Stephen's execution, Saul spearheaded the effort to eradicate the followers of Jesus Christ. It says that Paul ravaged the church, entering house after house. He would drag men and women out of their homes to prison. He would threaten them and at times murder them for following Jesus Christ. And if that wasn't enough, if Christians fled the area, if they chose to to flee the persecution and go to a different area, Paul would go to the authorities of the day and get letters in order to extradite people and bring them back to Jerusalem so he could murder, torture, and imprison them. In his own words, Paul said that he was all about pursuing the followers of Jesus to their death delivering them and binding them up in prison. He said in Acts 26, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but, they, but, but when they were put in death, I cast my own vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities." You see, Paul had a reputation. He had a reputation of one who would furiously pursue, furiously catch, imprison, torture, and butcher Christians all throughout the region. And now Ananias gets to go and meet him. You can imagine how Ananias must have felt in that moment. But he obeys God, and when he arrives, to his surprise... He doesn't find the man in which his his reputation precedes him, but instead he finds a man who was weak and blind sitting in a corner and praying. He finds a man 
who had been transformed by an experience on the road to Damascus, a man who had been transformed because he met Jesus in a powerful way, in such a way that it changed him in a way that nothing else really and truly could. You know, you and I always face circumstances and and difficulties in our lives. It's part of what life is really all about. But often what makes circumstances and difficulties hard is behind those circumstances stand the hearts of people. And those hearts of people are notoriously very difficult to change. For you, it may be a boss who dislikes you and makes work just impossible for you. It might be a teacher who doesn't believe you are fit for the major you've chosen and instead is trying to oppose you in every way he or she can. It may be a spouse or a child whose heart has grown cold and is making home a very difficult place for you to live. It might be an acquaintance who seems like they have it out for you and want to make life horrible for you. You see, all those difficult circumstances can be boiled down to the heart of someone who makes life difficult for you. And what makes it so hard is the thing that we all know, and that is that hearts, especially the hearts of others, are very, very difficult to change. You see, Saul's heart may have been the heart that was most resistant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet God, in an instant, in an instant, steps in and changes Saul's heart. It reminds us of Proverbs 21 that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of God. He turns it wherever he will. You see, changing hearts is almost impossible for us. It's hard enough to change our own hearts, let alone other people's hearts. Yet it is absolutely nothing for the sovereign God of the universe to change people's hearts. And that's what we learn from our story. But not only do we see the sovereign power of God, but also in this account, we see the deep grace of God. As we've seen, hearts are hard to change, but the thing that makes hearts hard to change is the fact that we are often blissfully unaware of the true state of our own heart. I can remember one point in my life where uh, I was just doing a certain behavior and not realizing that it was affecting anyone else until one young lady came to me and said, you know, what you are doing actually is really hurting me And it's hurting all those people that are around you. Now, my eyes were opened in that moment. Why? Because I was blissfully unaware that my actions were actually affecting other people. But then when my eyes were opened, I felt shame for my actions. You see, Paul was vehemently pursuing and arresting and butchering and murdering Christians. Yet in the midst of it, He was entirely unaware of the true nature of his own heart and the true nature of what he was doing. You see, Saul was one of the religious elite. He was educated in the rabbinical schools. He was a Roman citizen. He was a Pharisee. He was well-respected. And he believed himself to be a passionate defender of the law and of the religious tradition. He writes of himself that he was convinced 
that he ought to do everything he could in his power to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And what you see in Paul is something that you see all throughout the New Testament. That those people that most opposed Jesus all throughout the New Testament tended to be those people that were the most religious. People who had allowed their religion to distract them from the true nature of their own hearts. But on that road that day, Saul's eyes were opened. Not just to the reality of who Jesus was, but to the reality of his own heart and what he was doing. You see, in that encounter, Paul may have lost his physical vision, but instead he gained a true spiritual picture of his heart for the first time in his life. And he realized that his heart, instead of what he thought was for God, was actually and truly against God. Now, I'm sure that after this encounter, Saul must have felt some sort of sorrow for his sin. Once his eyes were opened, he must have realized how he had been spending the last few years of his life. He must have thought of all those people that he had brutalized and imprisoned and beaten. And to make matters worse, Jesus on that road says to Paul, or says to Saul at that moment, that not only were you persecuting my followers, but you were persecuting me all along. You see, I do believe that God must have overwhelmed Saul with a picture of his own sin and what he had done. And at points, God does that for us too. At points, God opens our eyes to help us to see the true nature of our hearts. But as in Paul's case and in our case as well, he would rather us be more overwhelmed, not so much with the depth of our sin, but ultimately by the depth of his grace. You see, most of the people you run into are blissfully unaware of the true nature of their hearts, right? But every once in a while, you run into people who have had their eyes open to the true nature of their lives. They've looked at their hearts and they've seen the damage and the carnage that sin has caused in their lives and in the lives of others. And often they are overwhelmed by sorrow for their sin and what they have done in their life. And sometimes they believe that God could never actually accept them because of all the things that they have done in their lives. But what you see in Paul is really interesting. What you see is that rather than sulking over his sin, the passage tells us that just a few days later, Saul is out in the streets declaring to people the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Now, why was he doing that? Why was he so free to do that? He was so free to do that because, yes, he was overwhelmed by his sin, but he was overwhelmed by something that was even greater, and that is the grace of God in his life. See, the gospel tells us that there is no sin that is too great, there is no rebellion that is too big that cannot be overwhelmed by the deep grace of God. Paul says these words about his own life in 1 Timothy. He says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, 
a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, whenever I read this passage in 1 Timothy, I think of the ocean. Not just because I like the beach, but I think of the ocean. And every time you go to the ocean, you see really strong, muscly men that go out into the ocean. Men that are very confident in their own strength and ability. And all of a sudden, what happens? A wave comes and knocks them over. All that strength, all that ability, all that perceived power they believe that they have. And then they are overwhelmed by the sheer nature of the ocean. I think the same is true when it comes to our lives. We can be overwhelmed by our brokenness. We can become overwhelmed in our sin. But ultimately, God wants us to be overwhelmed by his grace. Are you here this morning overcome by the depth of your sin? Are you wondering if you could ever be accepted by God because of what you've done? Have you tried to make it up to him? Have you tried to to work back into his favor and failed repeatedly? Then just like Saul, allow yourself to be overwhelmed by his grip of grace. Because there is no depth of sin that God's grace cannot cover. So our story tells us about the sovereign power of God. It tells us about the deep grace of God. But finally, it also teaches us the long reach of God. Because what's so amazing about this story is Saul, who was the villain, now becomes the greatest advocate for the church. The former persecutor now becomes God's instrument to not only spread the gospel in Damascus, but to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentile world. You see, God wasn't just interested in saving Saul, but he wanted Saul to be a mighty instrument for the kingdom of God. He wanted Saul to carry the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what we know from Christian history is the remainder of the New Testament is written by Saul, who becomes renamed Paul. He carried the gospel to distant lands, sharing the good news of the gospel to everyone he came in contact with, starting churches all over the ancient world. Through the instrumentality of God, he wrote incredible doctrines of theology that express in in beautiful theological terms the deep grace of God. But ultimately we know he was called to suffer. And he who murdered so many for the faith ended up being murdered for the faith when he took the gospel to Rome. So as you look at this passage and as, as you look at this dramatic story of change, Know that there is no burden that is too big that God cannot overcome. Know that there is no heart that is too hard for him to break through into. There is no sin that is too great that it cannot be overwhelmed by his grace. And there is no length that is too far for the gospel to travel. 
You may not be sitting here and, be, and have been responsible for butchering and murdering Christians, but the truth is your heart is just as opposed to God as Paul's was. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for all of us is that our hearts would be opened to the true nature of our souls, but not in a way that makes us trapped in sorrow for sin, but in a way that makes our hearts be open to being overwhelmed by the sheer power of the grace and the forgiveness of God.